Revelation chapter 4. In our last time together, we finished looking at the seven letters to the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. And as we looked at that section of scripture, we saw the non-negotiable attributes of any Christ-centered church in any generation as we heard Jesus himself say the things that were important to him. We also saw the seven various divisions of church history foretold by Jesus to John in a way that maybe John didn't even know and that we only can now tell because we can look back and we can compare what's written there with what has taken place and we see uh, that the Lord knew precisely what would take place throughout uh, the time of the church upon the earth. And the third thing that we did in those studies is that we completed the portion of the book of Revelation that is given to the church, if you would. Uh, chapters 2 and 3, those seven letters to those seven churches. And I guess I, I guess I have to say almost after that. We almost finished the section of the book of Revelation that deals with the church because the first three verses of chapter 4 also deal with the church, but in a much different way. Now, as you know by now, I hope, the book of Revelation breaks into how many sections? Three, that's right. Chapter 1, verse 19, gives us the outline. Jesus tells John, write the things that were, past tense, the things which are, present tense, and the things which shall be in the future. And at this time, we've seen the first two sections, we've completed them. Chapter 1, the things which were, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and glorified. What John had seen. Part 2, seven letters to seven churches, the things which are presently, the church age, where we find ourselves in the tail end of, you know, the things that are for John. And then chapters 4 through the end of the book, the things which shall be hereafter. The word in the Greek, again, is metatauta, which means after this, or the things that will be after this. And as we come to chapter 4 tonight, the very first words that we find there in verse 1 are after this. Again, in the Greek, it's metatauta. It should clue us in as to where we are in what John is giving to us, this prophecy, the things which shall be hereafter. After this. After what? After the church age is complete, after the bride of Christ has been completed and God is done dealing with and through this entity that we know as the church, what happens after this? Well, it says, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. 
And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now, we know that nothing in the book of Revelation, and really nothing even in the Bible, is insignificant. There's no filler words that are kind of just a segue from one thing into the next. Jesus has said that heaven and earth would pass away, but not one jot or tittle, the smallest mark of punctuation, would pass away from his word. And every word, every plural or singular, every aspect of this Bible, and especially of this book of Revelation that we have in front of us, is significant. So so what's happening here in these first three verses? It it isn't just the introduction into what's going to happen, but what takes place in these verses right here is very significant and very even, you know, more so significant to you and I. Why? Well, what does John tell us happens here? The first thing he says is that he looked and he sees that a door was opened in heaven. That in some way, some supernatural way that John can only communicate by saying that a door was opened in heaven. It seems as though there was a breaking of the invisible barrier between the physical realm that we know of as earth. And the spiritual realm that we know of as heaven. That somehow this this invisible barrier that separates the one from the other so that we can't see what's taking place in the heavenlies. This breach was broken. It was opened in some way. And a door is opened in heaven wherein John can see something that was otherwise invisible to the human eye. A door is opened in heaven, he tells us. Well, then he says that the first voice which he heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with him. Now, this is interesting. Why? Because 38 times between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 21, John is going to tell us of a a voice. He's going to say the next voice which I heard or, or the voice. Then I heard a voice of. Or then I heard the voice. And in 38 times in these you know, chapters, he's going to talk about the voices that he hears. And it becomes a very dominant and critical theme as we look through and recognize what it is that these voices are saying. But here, as we come into chapter 4, he tells us that the first voice, number one, of all that's going to take place, the very first thing that happens after this is that there's a trumpet. There's a voice, as it were, of a trumpet talking with him, which said, in the words now, that this voice, this first voice speaks as though it were a trumpet, are, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So what John is saying, essentially, right here in verse 1 of chapter 4, is that after the church age is complete... The first thing that happens is that a door is opened. A voice is heard that sounds like a trumpet. And the words are, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now for you Bible students, are there any lights going on in your mind as to what end time biblical event this may be pointing us towards or referring to? The door, the trumpet, the words come up here. Any takers? Together? 
The rapture, that's right. It's the event in the Bible that marks the end of the church age. And it's the last thing that happens on the biblical calendar prior to the final period of God judging planet earth. It's the rapture of the church. The rapture is when the Lord raptures or literally snatches away the church or the true believers supernaturally pulling us out of the earth and into heaven. There's a translation that takes place wherein in one moment we are in one place and we are one thing. And then in the next moment we are someplace else and we are something else. It's called the rapture. And that's what's happening. Now, Now I know that there's probably some sitting here that maybe you're new at the Bible, you know, or you haven't been around it too much, or you have kind of a church background, but you've never done too much Bible study per se. And, and, you, and you're starting to, you know, get a little antsy in your seat maybe, and you're saying, what is he talking about? I mean, this is the Bible study or is this sci-fi? You know, what, what's the story? You're, you're just said that people are going to be snatched away by the Lord, that they're going to be translated and go from one place to another. Well, what is this? It's in the Bible? Yeah. Well, what does the Bible say? How is this in the Bible? Well, three places really define and describe the rapture for us scripturally. The first is in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. It's, a, it's, a, it's really a, a pivotal section of scripture on prophecy and end times prophecy. See, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus had just laid into the Pharisees, the religious establishment there in Israel, in a way that had never taken place in Israel's history. He he looked at the rulers of the Jews and he called them dead men's bones. He said, you're whitewashed sepulchers, literally painted tombstones. He calls them hypocrites a number of times. And, And he is just that you can hear it in his voice that he's not saying these things as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That there's actually, you know, spit coming out as he utters these words. There's fire in his eyes as he looks at these men and he indicts them for their hypocrisy. And as he leaves the temple proper with his disciples and comes out then, uh, you, you know, away from that place, it says that the disciples, that they took Jesus in, in the beginning there of Matthew 24, and they began to show him all of the buildings of the temple as though Jesus hadn't seen them before. But the idea there is almost as if the disciples are saying, you know, Jesus, I mean, it really isn't all that bad. I mean, look at what look at what we've accomplished. I mean, think of all the history. Think of what's taken place through Solomon. And here you're coming in and you're really ruining it for us because, you know, we want to be in with these guys somewhat. And I mean, look at look at these structures and the response of Jesus as they show him these things is he says to them, listen, there is not one stone here that will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Every single stone that you see that you're boasting in and triumphing in, it's all going to be a pile of rubble. And as the disciples listen to what Jesus is saying and and analyze it and allow the weight of the sentences that he has formed sink into their soul, they ask him the only thing that there is to be asked. They say, what will be the sign of your coming 
and of the end of the age. It would be the end of the world for these things to happen. Yes, someday, but but Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the rest of Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus' answer to that question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And many have read, I'm sure almost everybody here has read Matthew chapter 24. And some have even gotten confused trying to put it together and align it with the rest of prophecy and scripture and all the rest. Well, it helps to understand that Matthew chapter 24, Jesus' answer, is a three-point sermon. There's three points. You guys know what that is. Well, maybe, okay, a six-point sermon, you know what that is, right? On Wednesday nights, we, we rarely do a three-point sermon, you know. But, but Matthew 24 is a three-point sermon. Verses 1 through 14, really it's 3 through 14, are the end times as it relates to the nations. The end times as it relates to the nations of the world as a whole. And you'll notice that all of the things that Jesus says in those verses concern the nations. Wars and rumors of wars, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilences in diverse places. They'll haul you off and, you know, all this stuff. And then he brings it to the end. He says, but he that endures to the end will be saved. And then, boom, the end of the first point. Then, point two is the end times as it relates to Israel. The nation of Israel, singularly, the Jews. And that's verses 14 all the way through verse 31. And you'll notice that all of the things that Jesus references concern the Jews. He says, let, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let him that reads understand. Well, who would understand that? The Jews. Let them that are in Judea, not, you know, that are in Judea, not go back into the house to get their stuff, but get out and run to the mountains. Let them that are on the housetops, you know, not go into the house and get anything, you know, where the house is flat and, you know, in that part of the world. He says, pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath day. That's speaking to Israel. Why? Because you're going to have a hard time getting a cab out of town if it's on the Sabbath day because they don't run. If you're on the top floor, guess what? You're taking the stairs if it's on the Sabbath day. So all of those things concern the Jews. And thus, it's the end times as it relates to Israel singularly. And then he brings it to the end. When you get to verse 31, it says he'll gather his elect from the four winds, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 28, somewhere in there where it talks about how God's going to gather his Jewish people from where they're scattered around the world, and he'll bring them uh, into that place. That's another study. But then that's the end of point two. Then the third point of Jesus' sermon, his answer to the question, is the end times as it relates to the church. In verses 32 through 51, to the end of the chapter, Jesus talks about the end times as it relates to the church. That's you and I. And so that's the portion that most significantly affects us and really addresses the answer to the question of what is the rapture and where is it seen in Scripture? In verse 36, Jesus says to us, He says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. What is that? It's just life as usual. 
There's nothing wrong with eating or drinking. There's nothing wrong with getting married or giving a daughter and a son to be married. But it's just speaking of just life as usual, all things continuing as though nothing was ever going to change. And it says that they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. In what form will that look like? What does it mean that the, the Son of Man will come in an hour that we know not, in a day that we don't expect? How? He answers in verse 40. He says, then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. In Luke's account of the same sermon, he goes one step further to say that two will be in a bed. and One will be taken and the other will be left. That just tells us that it will be night in some place. It'll be morning somewhere else. It'll be the middle of the work day in another area. And that in one moment, in that single t- you know, period of time, one will be taken and the other will be left. There's a time coming when, when two will be in the field and the one will turn around to say something to his partner and the partner will be gone. The two women will be working together in the morning, preparing the morning meal, and the one will turn over to look and the other one will be gone. That at somewhere on the planet, someone's going to roll over to see if their wife is going to go answer that crying baby and they're going to feel that there's nobody there. Because one has been taken and the other one has been left. Taken in the Greek, it means literally snatched away. Taken away. The Apostle Paul expands on this concept in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entire chapter is dedicated to an explanation of the resurrection. And people wonder, well, how is the resurrection of the dead work? How is God going to raise up someone that's been, you know, that, that's been dead maybe even for a long time? And, and, and so Paul answers the question throughout the you know, entirety of chapter 15. In, in verses 1 through 34, he describes the fact of the resurrection. That it is an absolute fact that everyone will be resurrected. That, that physical death is not the end of the road or the period at the end of the sentence. That it's a fact that there will be a resurrection. And then in verses 35 through 50, he talks about the fashion of the resurrection, how it works. What kind of body are we resurrected with? How does this whole concept flesh out when it actually happens? He answers that question in those verses. But then when he comes to verse 51, he talks about those that won't die because they live all the way until this event called the rapture. What's going to happen to the people that are alive at the time when Jesus comes to take the church out of the world? In verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. That means something that previously was not totally understood. He says, We shall not all sleep. And and in the Greek, that means die. That's what they used to say. Did he fall asleep? You know, and it, it means die. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump or trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we 
shall be changed, metamorphosized like a butterfly that turned from a caterpillar into that butterfly. For this corruptible, this worm, this chrysalis, must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul tells us in these verses, he adds more dimension to what Jesus meant when he said that one would be taken. He tells us that not everyone is going to die. That we're not all going to die. Not everyone's going to die. He also tells us that when this event happens, that it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And those that have actually, you know, gotten the stop, watch out. And timed the twinkling of an eye. They tell us that it's about a tenth of a second. I don't know who's got fingers that fast. You know, but somebody did it. They said in the tenth of a second, that moment, that split second moment, it's going to happen. The twinkling of an eye. And it tells us here that it's going to happen at the sounding of the last trumpet. Now to the Thessalonians, Paul also wrote concerning the rapture in chapter 4. In verses 15 through 18, Paul adds more dimension to this. He says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is not my opinion. This is not something that I dreamed up or something that I think is going to happen or something that I conjured up from a Bible study somewhere. But he's saying that this is the word of the Lord. That we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep or or that are dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, that's hopefully you and me, shall be caught up, That means snatched away. The word in the Greek is harpazo. In the Latin, it's raptus. It's where we get the English word rapture. Raptured, caught up, snatched away. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. What does Paul tell us here? He says that it's going to be the Lord himself that's going to descend from heaven. That that the door is going to open. The breach is going to be broken that separates the spiritual from the physical. And that the Lord himself is going to descend and appear. And that the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God is going to sound. And that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So what is the rapture and what do we know about it? We know that in a moment, there's a moment coming when the true believers in Christ will be living life as usual and the Lord will breach the physical barrier between heaven and earth. A trumpet will sound and in the blink of an eye, we will meet the Lord in the air. That's what the Bible teaches about this rapture. Well, how do we know that the passage in Revelation 4, chapters 1 through 3, is speaking of the rapture, this event called the rapture? Well, the answer, very simply, is because of three words that are used right there in verse 1. First of all, the reference to the door. When it says that I saw a door opened in heaven. The only other place in Scripture where 
the, the word door is used in the New Testament in that context is Matthew chapter 24, verse 33, when Jesus says that when you see these things, know that my coming is near, even at the what? Door. It's the only other time that's used. And here we see it again in Revelation where it says that the door was now opened in heaven. The second word there in verse 1 is the word trumpet. Now we saw in both of Paul's passages, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he tells us in both places that it will be at the sound of the trumpet that this happens. And then finally, the third word is when he hears the word, John, in there in verse 1, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That's what the rapture is. It's the Lord saying, come up here. It's when we're brought away and taken you know, out of this pit, if you would, to be home. Well, well someone's going to ask the question and say, well, why? Why is God going to do it that way? I mean, why a rapture? Why something so supernatural, so kind of strange? I mean, why not just come? I mean, the first time he came, he came as a baby, you know, something natural, something, you know, physical, tangible that we could relate to. Why the rapture? Why something that like, you know, where they're going to say aliens came or something? You know, why has it got to be that? Well, why a rapture? Number one, two reasons, is because the church is not appointed to experience the wrath and judgment of God that he's going to pour out on planet earth. You see, the events that happen after the rapture, the things that happen in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, that's a period of time when God is going to pour out wrath and judgment upon this planet in a way that it has never been experienced or understood or even thought of before. It's going to be time so terrible that people are going to wish for death. They're going to try to kill themselves, and it's going to be so bad that they're not even going to succeed. They're going to jump and bounce and be all right. And they're not even going to be able, that's what it says. It's going to be that bad, you know, that people, it's better to just jump, and then that won't even work. Terrible time. That's what's coming. Now, listen, tune in. (coughs) The gospel that we have received and that we proclaim and that we believe that the Bible teaches tells us that our sin, our iniquity, our uncleanness, and I don't know about you, but mine becomes more and more apparent to me every day, just how bad, how wretched, you know, how twisted this nature is that I've been, I don't know, say given. It's, It's there. It's nasty, you know. But that this sin that we have has separated us from God and left us condemned, out of his presence, headed for hell. And that the law of righteousness couldn't save us. Because although it's possible that if we keep the law, it can reform our behavior, it doesn't change our nature. I might not do sin outwardly with my hands, but I still desire it. And want it inwardly because my nature is so bent and twisted. So the law couldn't save me. So here I've got a problem. Because I've got this sinful separated nature. And I've got a law that's weak because it can't save me. Because my, it can't change my insides. But the gospel or the good news. That's what gospel means. Is that Jesus who was God became a man. 
and that he willingly absorbed all of the punishment and wrath that my sin purchased and deserved. That he hung on the cross and he endured the full measure and the full weight of the blow that was headed for me. He stood in between as the mediator, the savior, the priest, and he absorbed that wrath. And now he says, if you will believe and receive the gift that I have rightfully purchased on your behalf, I will extend to you a get out of hell free card. And you can be saved from all of your sin. And all of the punishment of it was laid upon me. That's the gospel. That we, he, the Bible says that he who knew no sin, I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The fact that Jesus already took the punishment, he already took the wrath that I deserved, caused Paul to write to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, listen, for God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus. Now the purpose of the tribulation, the seven year period of time when God is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ rejecting sinful world, is none other than the wrath of God. And if we, the church, have not been appointed unto wrath because Jesus took the wrath that we deserved, then for us to have to go through the period of tribulation would mean that the cross wasn't sufficient. That it wasn't enough that when Jesus said, it is finished, as he hung on the cross, there was a comma, not a period, at the end of the sentence. It's not quite enough what I did. They've got to experience half of it. You know, they've got to go through and experience and feel the weight of that judgment because of, no, it is finished. The veil was torn from top to bottom. The way was made open where a man can come back into fellowship with God. He can be restored, forgiven, cleansed, and freed from his sin and carry with him the hope of the rapture. That's why Paul said at the end of that section in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he says, comfort one another with these words. It wouldn't be very comforting for me to say to you, hey, guess what? God's coming. All you got to do is endure. Just hang on for seven years of living hell. It's the home stretch. Comforting, right? No. There are only three times in the Bible where judgment comes directly from heaven. There are many times where judgment comes, where God will use one king to judge another, or one nation to judge another, or you know, maybe a sickness or something of that nature. But only three times where judgment comes right out of heaven and, and destroys upon the earth. The first is the flood, when God flooded the earth, Genesis chapter 6. But notice that God took the man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he pulled him out and didn't allow him to experience the judgment, the wrath that was poured out. The second time was when God rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did he do? He had to literally snatch Lot out. He had to grab him, grab him by the hand, him and his wife, and yank them out of Sodom because it says that they delayed, that they were, you know, they were tired, they were not urgent about it and they were literally snatched out of Sodom and told we can do nothing until you are out and they were taken out and then as soon as they were gone boom the fire of God descended upon Sodom and Gomorrah 
And the third time is Revelation chapter 6 through 19, when judgment comes directly from heaven upon the earth. And just as he did with Noah, just as he did with Lot, God will be faithful to take his people out before that time of judgment comes. Any nation that's about to descend napalm, incendiary upon another nation, first thing they do is they call all of their ambassadors home. A nation will never, bomb, well, maybe Libya would, but <laughs> a, a nation will never bomb another nation while it still has its ambassadors in place within that nation. It will call them home first. And you and I, the Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven, that we've been bought with the blood of Christ, that we're sealed and called by his name, and he will be faithful to call us home before he pours out incendiary upon planet earth. And that's why there's a rapture. The second reason why is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. According to the prophet Daniel chapter 9, there are seven years left on God's calendar to deal with the nation of Israel. There were 490 years that were determined and set upon his people and upon his city. And 483 of those years have passed and there's seven left waiting in limbo waiting for that time when God will again deal with the nation of Israel. And that will take place during that seven-year period during the tribulation. But listen, where was the church during the first 483 years? Didn't exist. Wasn't birthed yet. Wasn't around. God was dealing with Israel. Now God's dealing with the church, but he will yet again deal with Israel. And during that time, the church will not be present on the earth during that last seven years. So a fulfillment of end times prophecy. Now, wait a minute, Nick. Okay. Do you really believe what you're saying? Are you listening to yourself? Because, I mean, really, I'm starting to feel more like I'm at a Star Trek convention than I am in church. I mean, you're talking about like people are just going to disappear, that, that, that there's going to be, this is weird, Nick. This is not supposed to, you know, we're supposed to get ashes on our head or something. Not, you know, this is crazy. What are you talking about? People are going to disappear? Jesus said, and we already read the verses in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. I'll read it again. He says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of of the Son of Man be. There are three, th- there are actually many things, but there are three main things about the days of Noah that we can relate to what Jesus is saying here in this text. The first thing that was taking place in the days of, of Noah is that there was just life as usual, like we've already said. Everything just going along, marrying, giving in marriage, eating and drinking, developing, the world growing, everything just going along with its momentum and its cycles the way it always has and always will. That was the days of Noah. That was the attitude amongst the people. 
The second thing that marks the days of Noah is that there was a rapid increase in wickedness and violence in the earth. It says it two or three times there in Genesis 6 when it's leading up to that time of the flood. It says that the whole earth was wicked and corrupt before the God. That all flesh had corrupted themselves before the God of heaven. And that the earth was filled with violence, so much so that it repented the Lord in his heart that he had even made man when he saw it. That there was an exponential increase in the amount of wickedness in the world. And then the third thing that marks the days of Noah is that there was a strange man claiming that unscientific phenomena was on the verge of taking place in their midst. There was a man building a boat in the mountains, proclaiming to the people that water was going to fall out of the sky. You say, well, wait, what's unscientific about that? Well, Genesis chapter, uh, somewhere, Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, tells us that the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth prior to the flood. That the earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground. And that there had never been a time that water had fallen out of the sky at all, ever. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the hall of faith where it's talking about Noah. It says that by faith, Noah being warned by God of things not seen as yet. Meaning that no one on earth had ever seen water fall from the sky. And here's a man who had a message. And he was saying, listen, we are on the verge of something supernatural about to take place in our midst. Unscientific phenomena is going to happen. Water is going to fall out of the sky. And that's why I'm building this boat here in the mountains. And the people said, you're drinking your bath water, Noah. You're crazy. This is sci-fi. This is Star Trek. You're crazy saying that water is going to fall from the skies. And it says that they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And he says, so also. Now listen, our message is not that it's going to rain. We're saying it's going to rapture. That there's going to be unscientific phenomena that's going to take place. People are going to suddenly be snatched away into the presence of the Lord at that time. And listen, what God says will come to pass. He has a perfect track record at performing those things which he has promised in his word. And he tells us, we've seen it in three passages, that he's going to take his people out and it is going to happen. Well, the natural question, if we've determined that, yes, this is what the Bible says and yes, this is what we believe, well, how close might we be to this time when the church will be taken away, the true believers in Christ will be raptured? Well, I mean, we could spend three weeks on this now just talking about all of the signs and the convergence of prophecy and how everything is coming together and we're watching it happen before our eyes. But I would say if I were to just think it through myself and say the top three, the top three things that we can look at going on that might be of some indication of where we're at on this schedule of God's clock, I would say the first thing that we have to look at is the birth pangs of Matthew chapter 24, verses 5 through 8. Look again, actually it's verse 4 through 8. They said, when shall these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And it says that Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. 
For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, or the beginning of labor, as though a woman was going into labor. He lists these things. He says, first of all, that there will be deception. Spiritual deception will be rampant in the earth. That there will be wars, rumors of wars, ethnic clashes of whole people groups rising up against each other. There will be famines in diverse places. You know, uh, what do we call those things? Recessions, you know, where people are having trouble making ends meet and putting food on the table. Pestilences, diseases springing up in different places earthquakes he tells us are going to be the sign i mean we just had two in like the last week the big one in new zealand uh and then the one that just took place in the capital of chile interesting it happened on the same day in chile that the 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 president or whatever they have there of that country uh declared that israel needs to make room for a palestinian state he made a public declaration on the same day there was a 6.1 uh, you know, Richter scale earthquake that took place in their city. You know, God doesn't like it when you say things like that. But as we, as we just consider it in our mind, just turn on the radio or open up the news, you know, paper or something, and you just look at all of the things that are going on in the world, it's like reading Matthew chapter 24. Oh, another earthquake, another sickness, another scare of disease, another outbreak of Chloria or, you know, uh, meningitis or, you know, uh, smallpox or, you know, just these things springing up. Oh, another earthquake in another part of the world. Another one that wiped people out. Oh, another explosion. Another war. Another uprising. All these birth pangs. You know, it's interesting. What do you know about, you know, a woman? I mean, my, I can't believe my wife's going to go into labor again soon, you know. Uh, but what do you know? You know that when you first get that first indication, you know, You think, ah, oh, we got time. Let's watch another movie, you know, see what happens. No, you go, ah, oh, you know, where's the bags? You know, where's the kid? Who's get, get the phone numbers? You know, we got all this stuff. Because listen, even though those labor pains may be a, a certain number of minutes apart, you know that once those labor pains start, what's going to happen? You're having a baby, right? And, and they just grow with, uh, you know, in frequency and in intensity as the time goes on. And what we see going on right now as we look around us is that they are just, I mean, we're 10 centimeters. You know what I'm saying? Uh, (laughs) The labor pains are frequent and intense in the world right now as we look around and we can see that. The second thing that is of indication towards us as to where we are is the instability that we see in the Middle East. You know, we know about the overthrow of the government there in Egypt and and all of the implications that that has as far as the peace treaty that they had formerly had with Israel that is now up in in question and who knows how all that's going to fall out. And and, and if they no longer are at peace with Israel, how does that change the the temperature in the rest of the region and how the rest of the nations will react and and ally themselves in that uh, type of circumstance? 
And we just heard about Iran passing through the Suez Canal and bringing two military warships and docking them at Syria. Uh, you know, a provocation to the nation of Israel. Countless words coming out of Iran saying we're going to wipe Israel off the map. You know, that they'll soon be obliterated and the Zionist regime will uh, just be eliminated in a storm. You know, uh, Ahmadinejad using those words. The threat of chaos in Saudi Arabia and what that would do to the whole world. And how that would affect us and how it would affect the region and the relations there. The advancement of the desire for a Palestinian state and the peace talks and, you know, the consequences of dividing Israel in that sense. And what would happen if that continues as it is continuing. The turning of nations, including our own, uh, uh, away from Israel, distancing ourselves, saying we don't want anything to do with you. All of these things drawing towards this, this, this war that's going to take place when the world in the Middle East finally says, that's enough. We're just going to take Israel out and we'll solve this whole problem. Just that one little stumbling stone there right by the Mediterranean Sea, we'll just wipe them out. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and we see it funneling towards that conclusion so quickly. It's a sign of the end. And then number three, I would say the rapid advancement of technology coupled with global financial instability. You know, I mean, if you stop and think about it, how quickly technology is advancing. You know, we don't even think about it anymore. When something new comes out, uh, you know, like Watson or something that can win at Jeopardy, you know, we just go, oh, yeah, another robot, you know, something, you know, another iPhone thing, iPhone 5, the iPhone 6 million, GSP, the number 4, the letter Q, you know. And, and, you know, all these things come out, and we just go, oh, yeah, there's another one, there's another one. But think about what it was like in 1990. I mean, how many of you were alive in 1990? In 1990, I remember, I was in probably like 6th, 7th grade, something like that. And I remember one of the kids in my, you know, school class there came in after Christmas and he had, you're not going to believe this, a pocket TV, black and white, retractable antenna. He could get six analog channels, you know, and, and we would, oh, lucky you know and it cost 250 dollars you know oh you gotta you can watch tv wherever you are that's so incredible you know now i mean if i were to whip that out look what i got for christmas you know you'd say yeah okay and you'd be like texting you'd be laughing at the youtube video that someone just sent you invisibly you know, wirelessly and translated, and you're watching it in high definition sitting there in your church pew during the Bible study. <laughs> the rapid advancement of technology, and, and we kind of just take it for granted. But yet you can put your barcode on your iPhone and you can scan it at the grocery store. Oh, Shoppers Club? Doop, there it is. Gym membership? Doop, there it is. All in one place. And you just see this happening. And then the way things are globally, financially, things are being manipulated. Things are happening. Things that we, we can't communicate or understand or uncover or, you know, we can speculate. But yet we know, and we'll see as we advance through the book of Revelation, that this is heading somewhere. We're in the last days. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. 
Daniel says that, seal up these words until the time of the end. He says, for people will go to and fro and knowledge will increase. That at the times of the end, in the last days, there's going to be this rapid advancement of knowledge in man. Well, what happens as we wind up this Bible study? What happens immediately after the rapture? The answer really depends on which team you're on. Really. I mean, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you stand in a position where you have to give an account for your own sins because they have not yet been dealt with, well, when the rapture happens, you just miss the greatest opportunity you ever had. And you're going to regret it for the rest of your life the rest of your existence, the rest of time and eternity. Even if you give your life to the Lord after, you're still going to regret it because you'll hold a different position than what you could have had. And you'll go through hell on earth that you could have avoided. If you're, an, if you're a non-believer, then brace yourself for what's coming next. And don't think that you have the assurance of salvation that you can just give your life to the Lord after the rapture, that that will be my sign. Well, the rapture will happen, then I'll give my life to Christ. Listen, if you give your life to Christ after the rapture, if you do, because the Bible says there's going to be a strong delusion that's going to come right from God himself and that people are going to be deceived and not going to believe. They're going to believe the lies. But if you do, you're going to have to lose your head. You will be martyred, you will be killed for your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you can't live for Jesus now, I say you won't be able to die for him then. You will have missed the greatest opportunity that you could ever have. However, if you're a believer, what happens immediately right after the rapture? Back in the book of Revelation, we made it all the way to verse 2. John says, and immediately, immediately, didn't have to go to purgatory, didn't take long to get there, didn't need a GPS, he says, immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. In one instant, he went from chaos, from a time of tribulation where he was in isolation on an isle of Patmos, after experiencing 90 years of all that this world could throw at him. And in that one instant, he was translated, and all of the chaos of this life was contrasted with the one who sat upon the throne. The God who is anchored and seated in his place. Who's in control and sovereign over all things. And he was in the presence of the one that he would be in the presence of for the rest of his existence. And all of the chaos of life was immediately squenched. As the peace and life of God was revealed to him in that instance. As he sat or stood before the throne. Probably fell before the throne of almighty God. And it tells us that he, was, that he that sat was to look upon as a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. That the light and the clarity and the power and the glory that emanated 
from the one who was seated upon the throne was there visible for John to see. And that is the blessed hope that you and I have. That that moment when all of this chaos, all of the confusion, all of the hell that we experience in this life, all the tribulations, all of the setbacks, all of the disappointments, all of the, the unquestionable or the questionables and the, the instability, all the failures of ourselves and those around us in that instant are going to give way to perfect light and perfect beauty as we behold the one who's seated there upon the throne in that moment. That's our destiny. That's what we're waiting for. And the Lord will speak to us then. We'll speak to him. And the Bible says that we will know even as we're known. There'll be no more questions. There'll be no more tears. They'll be wiped away from our eyes. And we'll spend the next seven years in a wedding feast, a banquet, a reunification, if you would, at that time. The question to ask yourself as we close, and Lori, you can come, is are you ready? Are you ready for that to happen? If you're Christian... Are you living in the mindset of the Lord delays his coming? That, you know, hey, it's been so long. I mean, John believed that Jesus would come in his day. Paul thought that Jesus would come in his day. Spurgeon thought that he would come in his day. Who are we to think that he'll come in our day? Well, that's an attitude of saying he's delaying his coming. He's not right at the door. It's not going to happen right now. The Bible says that that attitude, that mindset, is going to lead us as Christians into a place where we're living carnally. That we'll begin to eat and drink with the drunken. And not only carnality, but brutality will begin to beat our fellow servants. That there'll be a roughness and a harshness to us. As we say in our heart that the Lord delays his coming, that that attitude carries with it consequences. The question to ask yourself, Christian, is Do you have that mindset? Are you living to amass wealth and treasure? Or are you living in a neutral Christianity, buried talents? Are you prepared to give an account as a Christian of the action that stands behind your faith and what you're doing in the name of the Lord as you wait for him to come using your talents and burning your light to glorify him? Are you ready to give an account, husband or wife, to the type of spouse that you've been, the way you've treated your significant other and dealt with the family and the children that God's given to you, dad, mom, as an employee or a businessman? Are you ready? Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you living in unconfessed sin? You quit struggling a while ago. You just said, no, you know, I'm giving in. I I can't do it. I certainly don't want to be found in that position when he comes. If you're a non-Christian here, Jesus said you must be born again. He didn't say you have to join a born-again church or call yourself a born-againer. He said you have to be born again. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And there has to be a decision that you make and a commitment that you make within your heart where you come to God and you say, my sin still rests upon myself. 
and I need you to take it. I need you to save me. I need your spirit to regenerate me, to bear me again, birth me again, regenerate my soul, bring me to life in you. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't given your life to Christ and traded places with him, in that sense of letting him absorb your wrath so that he can give you his life. Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. And if you don't belong to him, then guess what? When the rapture comes, you'll find yourself left behind. But the good news is that even right now, in this age of grace, In these last days of church history, he's still extending out the invitation and saying, look, look at my nail-pierced hands. Consider the blood that dripped down from my feet as I hung on the cross and I absorbed the weight of separation from God. The wrath that you deserved that I took for you. And now he stands and he says, whosoever will, let him invitation stands to any that would say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need your salvation. The law can't save me. My promises I make to myself can't save me. My deep purposing within myself that I'm going to do better can't save me. It can't change me. Lord, the Bible says that you can save me. And I present my life to you right now, that you would be my Savior, that you would be my Lord. And that when this rapture comes, that I would be in that company of those that are taken. I know it's only by your grace. I would encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would say a prayer very similar to what I just said. And that you'd give your life to the Lord. You begin to live for him and know what it means to live. Let's all stand.